we come in the book of Revelation to chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14. Tonight we will uh, consider the entire chapter. And I encourage you not only to uh, find Revelation 14 and to uh, keep the Bible open as the text will simply, uh, the message will simply develop the text of this chapter. When we come to Revelation 14, by the time that we get to the end of it, we are uh, to the end uh, of the struggle between good and evil. This chapter is a tremendous encouragement to us as Christians because we see the ultimate, the final, and absolute triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 14 is like a table of contents for the rest of the book, for it covers those things. In Revelation 14, we see uh, Christ and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. We see the angelic messengers proclaiming uh, from the heavens the last instructions and warnings of God. We see the fall of Babylon. We see judgment on those who are marked by the beast to be accepted by him. There are the blessings of the dead in Christ and there is a preview of Armageddon, the battle that will truly end all wars. There's quite a contrast with chapter 14 and the previous chapter. Though actually the time involved overlaps, in chapter 13 we had an earthbound view. We saw a world ruled by Satan and the unholy counterfeit trinity that he will reveal on the earth. In chapter 13 and 14, consider these comparisons. In chapter 13, we focus on the beast and the false prophet. In chapter 14, we focus on the Lamb of God and the angelic messengers. In chapter 13, we see things that are spurious and counterfeit and false. In chapter 14, we see things that are true and genuine and holy. In chapter 13, there is the mark of the beast. In chapter 14, there is the mark of God. In chapter 13, the damned are in focus. In chapter 14, the redeemed are in focus. In chapter 13, we see the very best that man can do, that incarnation of Satan who will bear the number 666, which re represents the best efforts of humankind. But in chapter 14, we see 144,000 sealed and protected by the grace of God. We see the fullness of the glory and the grace of our God. Now notice with me in this chapter several things. First, in verses 1 and 2, here we see the Lamb return. And I looked, 
And behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Mount Zion was the capital city of David. It was that fortress that he captured from the enemies of his people who had stayed there in defiance of the people of God for hundreds of years. He went in, he captured it. It was there that David built his fortress. It was there that he built his palace. It was there uh, that the throne associated with David is always and has always been set, and it is to that location that the Lord Jesus Christ will descend in victory to establish himself on the throne of David where he will reign. We first saw these 144,000 in chapter 7. They were sealed there. We were told there they would be protected, that they would be witnesses, that they would boldly proclaim the gospel around the world. And now we see that at the end, as Christ has come, not one of them has been lost. God was absolutely true to his promise. And judging by the multitudes that we see who have turned to the Lamb, who have come to Christ for salvation, they won literally millions of people to, face in, to faith in Christ by their personal witness in those last days. You know, this is really a major miracle uh, in view uh, for many reasons, but because of the uh, chaos that is abroad on the earth during all of this time, and yet these boldly having taken God at his word, have scattered to the four winds, they have done in a rather short period of time what the church never did during all of the years of opportunity, they will have shared the gospel around the world with everyone. Over one half the population of the earth has been killed in the violence, but the converts, no doubt numbering in the millions, will be preserved alive until the end, and then Christ will gather all of them together. The Lamb returns. It is the focal point of all prophecy, the coming again, the coming in glory, the coming in victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice in verses 3 through 5, here we see the Lamb lauded as they praise Him. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they are celibate. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb." and no lie was found in their mouth, they are blameless. Harmony 
will finally, once again and forever, be universally restored, but only after the Lord Jesus Christ comes. This chapter goes clear through not only to the end of the tribulation, but it shows us in this picture and in the first two verses the establishment of that millennial kingdom, the reign of peace, the thousand years reign on the earth. And it shows us as heaven and earth sing his praises together. Here we have those on the earth at the end joining with heaven's harpist to praise the Lord Jesus. These physically enter the millennial kingdom without having seen death. They share that in common with those who were alive and remain until the rapture of the church who will never see death. W.A. Criswell made this statement about the new song that no one else could learn. It is foolish for all of us to try to be alike. God does not want us alike. He did not even want our noses or our ears alike. He did not want even uh, our... I said that, didn't I? God likes our differences. He likes for no two of us to be alike. He does not make any two snowflakes alike, and so in his churches. He calls one to be a preacher, another to be a singer, another to be a helper, a shepherd of the sheep, an assistant, another to be an administrator. God calls you, and God calls others, and for all of us to do God's work, each in his own place is to glorify God. It is the Lord who has made us different and let us exalt him in it. We see here the four living creatures and the elders. Now we have seen the elders elsewhere in Revelation. There are 24 of them. I believe that they represent the old covenant and the new covenant. That the 12 of the elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 of them represent the 12 apostles. In the Old Testament, they looked forward to a sacrifice that was good enough to pay for their sins. They looked forward as they offered the sacrifice of a spotless lamb to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and in faith offering the blood of the Lamb, they were saved. In the New Testament and after, we look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and in faith reckoning His blood shed once for all for all sin as adequate for our sins, we are saved. And whether in the old era or in the new, all were looking alike, some forward, others back to the cross. All are saved in exactly the same way, by faith in God and by reckoning the sufficiency of the blood. No one else could sing their song. They were unique, as are we all. And then notice in verses 6 and 7, here is the last chance. 
And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. Angels at last will get their chance to get in on the proclamation of the gospel. They are indestructible. Nothing on the earth will affect them. They cannot be hurt and they will carry his message in these last days. Hal Lindsay makes an interesting uh, analogy of this to 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. He writes, For centuries, angels have wanted to get in on the act of world evangelization. Peter tells us that the angels are intensely interested in the whole story of redemption. They have been itching to preach the gospel, but God has given that privilege to us. The angels would love to push us to the side and get the job done right. But Peter tells us that the angels are excited about the grace that God is showing to us by letting us tell people about the inher eternal inheritance we have through Jesus Christ. And now at last, the angels will participate. They will be calling for repentance. There will be seven angelic messengers in those very last days, and they will proclaim what is happening or what will happen. They have always wanted to do it. First Peter 1, 12, talking about the things revealed in prophecy, said that they are things which angels have always desired to look into. Notice fourthly in verse 8. Here is the last epitaph, the last obituary that will be written. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. The fall of Babylon is detailed in chapters 17 and 18. There we see that Babylon is used in three different ways in prophecy. Very plainly, Babylon is used literally as that city in Persia. It is also used in chapter 17 of Revelation to describe the apostate one world religion that will follow the Antichrist. And it is used in chapter 18 of the one world government or political system that will come and will be destroyed at the end. Evil originated physically, geographically, evil originated in the region that Babylon is in. It does mean a literal city. For at least 300 years, uh, many within the Christian family uh, have laughed at suggestions that interpret prophecy to say 
that Babylon one day will be rebuilt. And with much, and yet with much fanfare and excitement and worldwide publicity, in the spring of 1987, the world was invited to a music festival in the rebuilt city of Babylon. It has already been rebuilt. Evil originated there. All false religion originated there. And all of those meanings, the literal city, the one world apostate religion, the one world government, all of those will be destroyed when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. It is truly the last epitaph. Notice in verses 9 through 13, here is the last warning. And another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he, will, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord for now on. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Here is the last warning. Judgment will come to those who refuse mercy. It is that simple. If you want a bottom line on the human experience, it is that grace is there from God to wipe away all sin, but judgment will come to all those who refuse mercy. God will have now done all that he can. You know, one of the things that is striking to me about Revelation is I read of those very last days as God has forestalled his judgment as he has withheld his hand and let the world go on as it would for all of this time, I marvel at his restraint. It is a good thing for the rest of the world that any one of us is not God. You ever stop to think of that? It really is. He has withheld his hand, but there is a time it is appointed, it is set, it is known only to the Father, and when that time comes, there will be no more mercy. It will have all been given. There will be no pity then. Many chances have been given, and his patience will finally give way to judgment. Those who worship the beast, in that day will be destroyed 
from the earth. And there will be no one at that time who can plead ignorance, for even the mighty angels of God have gone through the atmosphere across the planet proclaiming the last warning. In verses 12 and 13, the tribulation saints are in focus. These are those who have been martyred, killed during these last days because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. You know, I suspect that God has a far uh, different perspective on death than most of us do. Death certainly is the enemy of our mortal flesh, but it is the friend of our soul. For it is the last short step to the bosom of the Father. And these tribulation saints will really be better off than those who live through the tribulation. For it says here that they will rest and their deeds will follow them. They will have rest and they will have reward. They will be with the Lord Jesus from the moment of death and forever. The last warning is two-edged. As the judgments fall, there will be mercy for those who know Christ. There will be judgment for those who do not. And then notice in verses 14 through 20. Here we see a preview of the last harvest. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Notice verse 16 again. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called with a loud voice, to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of about 200 miles. This is a preview of the results of Armageddon. Now, often when we talk about it, we use the term the battle of Armageddon. But actually, an examination of Revelation and other prophetic scriptures show us that there are a series of battles with the one we call Armageddon 
being the very last, the final and decisive battle. This particular battle is dealt with also in Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16, and in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 19. It is called by the prophet Joel of the minor, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, Joel 3, verses 13 and 14. It is called the Valley of Decision. Harvest time has finally come. God's final penalty will be executed. The cup of wrath is full and will be poured out on the earth. There are no more striking visions in the book of Revelation than the two that are described here. If you read it carefully and closely, you will see that first there is a selective reaping and then there is a total and indiscriminate reaping. Christ separates as he will and then all will be harvested and the winepress will be full of fruit. The first selective reaping, I believe, is his own as he preserves them. The second is the reaping of judgment as Christ descends with his saints for his own. Dr. Criswell draws an analogy between this reaping and the reaping of the wheat and the tares that the Lord Jesus told of in a parable. Uh, I like very much what he had to say about it. Let me read it to you. Wheat is a beautiful, magnificently meaningful representation and symbol of the children of God. When wheat ripens, the full, rich heads are bowed down to the earth. When the tares ripen, the weeds, they stand erect. But when the wheat ripens, it bends its face to the ground. As God's children grow in grace, as they are made heavy with the knowledge and the presence and the goodness of God, they bow lower toward the ground. A church member who is proud of himself, proud of his goodness, proud of his excellence, walking in self-sufficiency and adequacy is in God's sight a tear. But a church member who is lowly and humble, in honor preferring others before himself, and whose life is given to intercession and to prayer in behalf of those who do not know God, belongs, you may be sure, in the garden of heaven. The more we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, the more our faces will bow to the earth, weighted down with the presence and the grace of God. Another thing about wheat is that as wheat ripens upward, it dies downward. What a beautiful picture of what God does in our lives as we grow. We see here the wine press of the unmitigated, uncut wrath of a sovereign God. And when the one seated on the cloud with the golden 
crown, the crown of victory, which can only belong to Christ. When we see him, he is assisted by angels for the harvest of judgment, but he reaps his own. When it comes, it will be that simple. I ask you to read verse 16 again as we went through it. Now, notice that all of the uh, build-up, all of the, all of the uh, strategic planning, all of the, the ideas and the dreams of man, and at the end of time, all of the nations of the earth uniting behind one government, behind the incarnation of Satan, the most magnificent human who has ever lived. All of that, is over this fast. When we read a little more of the battle in chapter 16, again in chapter 19, when we read about that, we will be built up again, anticipating. And it will be over, over in the blink of an eye. Not a shot will be fired it is described differently here and in chapter 16 and 19 exactly the details of what happens, but they all have this in common. By the word of his mouth, he will speak and it will be over. It will all be over. He has always been in control. And he still is. There will be no peace in the true sense on the earth until it comes after Armageddon on the terms of the Prince of Peace. William Newell said, if Josephus, now Josephus was a Jewish general and historian, if Josephus could say that when Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus, that is, the Roman conqueror Titus in A.D. 70. The Roman soldiers obstructed the lanes with dead bodies and made the whole city run with blood to such a degree, indeed, that the fires in many of the houses were quenched by blood. What folly it is to doubt this word of God that a river of blood will run when the Son of God tramples the nations of all the earth in his almighty anger. Yes, a river from Edom to Carmel, 200 miles. We dare not read the verse that tells this except as God's literal foreview of truth. Now, the hill of Megiddo is beside a valley that empties in the Jordan River. And from the foot of that valley where it joins Jordan to the Gulf of Aqaba where it empties into the sea is just about 200 miles. Blood, four and a half feet deep, 200 miles long. This genuinely is the end. And it is unlike any horror in history. All of the prophecy points to it, and it is not symbolic of hell. It is descriptive of what will 
take place on this planet at the end of time. God will judge and Christ will come. You notice that in this chapter there are no apologies. God's wrath is justified. We take no pleasure, nor does God, in the damnation of the wicked. But we must face the fact. It is an awful scene, but it is a righteous judgment. Sin has corrupted man throughout his entire being. All of us are sinners by nature. He shed his blood on the cross. He took our judgment when he suffered there. And for those who reject him, there is only the sobering warning of Hebrews 9, 27. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. We might also ask ourselves the question and ask it of others, of Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Evil will be eradicated from the earth. It is coming. It will happen. And I would ask you, and I would ask you as you look into the faces, as you hear the voices, as you, as you pass by and interact with people day by day, do you know Christ? Do they know Christ? Do you want for them what is revealed here? If not, then remember the admonition of the gospel song, it only takes a spark to get a fire going and pass it on day by day. May we pray. Heavenly Father, how I thank you for the fact that though the times and the season are hidden from us, no man knows, not even the Son, but the Father only, that the result is not in doubt, nor indeed has it ever been. Father, I thank you that in your wisdom and in your grace, you have given every possible opportunity for repentance to the children of men. And I thank you that whatever time remains, you have given to us to take that message around the earth, across the street, to those who need to know. Now, Father, the picture that we have read about is not terribly frightening, but the reality must be. May we glimpse the destiny of those without Christ. May we have renewed commitment to tell them. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We will sing during this time of invitation, hymn 191, I have decided to follow Jesus. I do not know your heart. I do not know your need. But I have the great privilege on behalf of our Lord and this congregation to invite you to Jesus Christ. If you would share with us that you 
have been saved, I invite you to come forward now. If you would join the church, I invite you to come forward now proclaiming publicly your faith in Christ, your commitment to His will. If you would kneel and pray, or if you would simply, where you are, make peace with Him, whatever He would have you do, do it right now, do it quickly, as we stand, while we sing. not hold the invitation any longer than the Lord wants it held, but allow me to remind all of us again that the Lord doesn't reveal himself, his will, to us in order that we may consider it. He reveals it to us in order that we may obey it. And if he has moved you to commitment, whatever it might be, the best time is right now. We sing a moment longer what he would have you do. Do it tonight. I have decided Our men will take their places. We will receive God's tithes and our offerings. May we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious and marvelous gift of grace. May we graciously return to you and share with others of your bounty. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.